Welcome back, everybody. It's good to see you again. I've been missing the last couple of episodes, so I'm happy to be here to host another episode of the Carnivore Roundtable. I am Kate Mitzi. I'm a functional nutritionist just outside of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and this is our crew. Uh, okay, so my name is Vajid. I am one of the other co-hosts of the Carnivore Roundtable. I'm a Canadian fellowship-trained uh, radiologist MD, and I have a big passion for uh, prevention of disease uh, through nutrition and lifestyle. And just to do our little medical disclaimer, anything that you hear us discuss in this podcast, it can't be taken as specific medical advice. So please, especially if you've got some kind of diagnosed disease or you're on medication, uh, you know, seek um, advice from your clinician, whether that's an MD or someone else prior to engaging in any kind of major nutritional change. Great. Everyone, we are the meters. I'm Daniel. This is Petra. And yeah, we're just regular meat eating civilians uh, who love to learn about this stuff and um, have been following the carnivore diet for roughly just shy of about, roughly about two years now, or hit into the two year mark. And yeah, we're just super passionate about learning about nutrient density and um, we just love this stuff. So. And then today our guest is Judy Cho. Many of you may already know her as Nutrition with Judy on Instagram, recent author of The Carnivore Cure. And Judy is a mom and uh, practicing, practicing nutritional therapy in Austin, Texas. She works to find the root cause of problems um, with our health and work to restore uh, optimal health in her patients. Welcome, Judy. Thank you. Oh, I didn't know if I should start talking. Thanks for having me. Um, this is, um, looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. For sure. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about um, quite a vast array of subjects, but that are really important and critical in the, um, the reasoning why someone might use a carnivore diet as, a, as an intervention or a lifestyle. So we're going to be talking about anti-nutrients, nutrients, and histamine intolerance, which is a very hot topic right now. Um, and Judy, we know you are expert in these things, so we can't wait to hear your views on all of them. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, where do you want to get started? <laughs> so we can start with something that kind of blew my mind away the first day I ever heard about the carnivore diet. Uh, Daniel's sister mentioned bioavailability and bioindividuality. So I had no idea what that was. For 27 years, I'd never heard about it. So can you kind of explain to us what that means in terms of nutrition? Yes, um, they're both very, very important uh, words. So uh, we could first talk about bio. Um, let's just talk first about bioavailability, which it's really in terms of nutrition and food and what we're eating. And so you know, we can say that spinach, for example, has a lot of iron, um, you know, per 100 grams, which is kind of like the standard that they use to compare, you know, different foods. But the thing is, how much of that iron is available for not only breakdown, but also absorption in the small intestine, which is where we absorb most of our nutrients. So when you factor in those things, and they have ways to measure that, and we can talk about that shortly. But in terms of bioavailability, the iron is a lot of times it's not absorbed. And one of the reasons is anti-nutrients and we'll talk about that too. But so when we eat meat, for example, um, the absorption is much, much higher. I think it's even like maybe 80% more than say the iron in, um, in spinach. And so, you know, we can say on paper, sure, iron from spinach looks as good as iron from meat, but it's just not as bioavailable, meaning again, the absorption um, and even like the breakdown is just not as easy on our bodies. And then if you were to incorporate anti-nutrients, and again, I know we'll talk about it, but as an example with spinach, um, it's really high in oxalates, which is an anti-nutrient. So a nutrient that um, it blocks the absorption of iron, especially in spinach. So as much as spinach is touted for iron, you're probably not going to absorb most of the iron because of the um, anti-nutrients of oxalates. So that's bioavailability. And then you really need to think of like bioindividuality, right? So when we talk about nutrition and the recommended daily values, um, it really should depend on like your genetics, your age, um, your metabolic disease, you know, are you pregnant? Are you an athlete? So all of these matter. And so in the carnivore space, when you hear people like, 
we need carbs or we don't need carbs. It really depends on the person, right? So I see a lot of sick people in my practice and most of them have some type of metabolic disease. So they're probably not going to do better eating some carbs. There are some people that are athletes that train hard. So if they have a little bit of glucose before their workout, maybe it's better for them, right? So this is where the bio individuality is really important. You can't say someone that's 20 years old starting carnivore because they want to optimize longevity is going to be the same for someone that's like 65 that's just sick um has like high cholesterol uh heart disease and um like is diabetic right you can't use the same prescription for each person like the macros will differ and so that's where in terms of nutrition you have to be mindful of bioindividuality for people as well as the um bioavailability of nutrients for every food type. I have a question, just a little bit more of the specifics about the bioindividuality. So do you always, uh, is, is it mainly based on things like their lifestyle, their disease status? Uh, like you mentioned genetics, but do you ever do any kind of like objective measures to figure out what's going to guide, you know, what you're going to tell them to eat basically? What do you mean by measures? Like, do I do genetic testing? Is genetic testing or blood work or like anything other than just knowing that they've got a certain lifestyle or a certain disease? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, most times what happens is a lot of my clients, they uh, already have blood work from their doctor or they did the physical and they send it to me and then I'll look at it. Um, some of them do like hair mineral analysis. Some of them do um, some of the genetic testing, but I recently just saw one for genetic testing and then they kind of filter the categories based on like, these are the priority items that you should kind of look at. And then here's some that are not as significant. And literally there are some markers that say the exact opposite. So one is like, you shouldn't eat too much protein your, you know, genetics show that. And then another genetic marker is like, um, it doesn't matter if you, you know, you don't have the susceptibility of like cholesterol disease or something like that related to meat. So I like to kind of look at a blend of everything. So symptoms is really important, right? So your body has this biofeedback with you, right? So like, for example, if you smell something rotten and your body just feels kind of disgusted by it, it's telling you don't eat it, right? So that's your kind of body's way of the mechanistic way of protecting you. And so same way, if you have aches and pains, um, joint pain, inflammation, those are indications something is wrong. You don't have pain for no reason. Then I'll look at some blood work. So how is your inflammatory markers? Are you, you know, diabetic, right? What's your cholesterol look like? Is your triglycerides high versus your LDL? Like all of those matter. Um, and then the hair mineral, it kind of shows a status of like, are you absorbing minerals or do you even have minerals? Um, and then I have other tests that I run within just my own practice. And so a blend of all of that, plus like the person's own individual issues. So have they ever struggled with disordered eating, right? So I can't just tell this person all of a sudden to eat a ton if they're scared of gaining weight, right? So all of this matters and that's all the bio-individuality that I'm talking about. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah, I still cringe when I think about how much spinach I used to put in my shakes. Oh, me too. Now it's so damn healthy. And like now it's just like right off the door. But um, on to our next question. So we do hear a lot about like the differences in terms of like the protein quality and bioavailability in animal versus plant sources. Um, so what we were wondering, it's like if you can discuss a little bit onto that. And is there any way to sort of like measure this or some kind of scoring system that is good to sort of give our audience? Yeah, so I, I took some notes. If I forget, I'll just kind of look down. But so there are, um, there's several, and I talk about it in the Carnivore Cure book, which is coming out soon, but there was a few, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but in, I guess like the early 2000s, the FAO and the World Health Organization came out with this measure called the PDCAST, which stands for Protein Digestibility Corrected Amino Acid Score. <clears throat> and so basically what this does is um, it kind of, and this is kind of one of the, the negatives they say about this scoring, but it makes um, every protein kind of on this um, standard scale. So anything above 100, they just kind of mark it as 100. So any, so at the higher end of protein digestibility and absorption, you don't really get the differences because they just kind of flat rate everything at 100. And then another negative that people say is, if you are missing one essential amino acid, an essential meaning that your body doesn't produce it, but it's required for optimal health, um, then they consider it a zero. So even if you have like 
I think 15 of the essential amino acids, and I think there's about 20 of them, um, your rating of that protein will get zero. So obviously a lot of plant-based dieters are like, that's not an accurate score. Um, and then one other knock is that um, uh, they measure your fecal absorption. So a lot of our absorption of nutrients is in the small intestine. And so they say when you're measuring fecal, like it's not a fair, like what does it do in the small intestine? Because that's where it really matters. Um, and so in about like 2013, I think, uh, they, the FAO came up with a new one that's basically the DIA. So it's a, it's a slightly different one. It doesn't get capped at 100. I honestly think the uh, biggest reason they implemented it is because it favors, um, it sheds a more positive light on vegetable protein. So the PDCast, the one I just talked about, um, definitely shows the benefits of absorption in protein in um, animal foods. And the, the new one, the DIAS also does, but it also favors vegetable proteins a little, like they score a little bit better. So then it's like, see, look, look at the vegetables, right? Soy um, it is pretty good of a, but it's not, um, you know, it, those tests, one, they don't consider bioavailability in terms of anti-nutrients. So again, if we were to talk about like soy and what about the estrogenic factors, right? Or what about any of the anti-nutrients that are binding it or the toxins in the soil? Like none of that is considered. It is literally just, okay, does it have every single amino acid? And then how does it look in your fecal matter, right? So if some of that's absorbed, then that's the rating. Um, the way that they came up with all of this is interestingly, it's from breast milk. So they believe that breast milk is a true perfect food. And so they broke down all the amino acids, um, the profile in breast milk, and then they put that measure as to what the recommended, recommended daily value should be for young kids. And then they just um, proportionally did the same for adults. And that is how they created these amino acid scores and what we need in amino acids. And then this is how I always argue like, so breast milk doesn't have a ton of uh, vitamin C, but it's considered a perfect food. So then why do we care so much about vitamin C, right? But um, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So, you know, um, the diaz is kind of used by a lot of the plant-based dieters to say, look, uh, soy and, uh, you know, the pea protein, their digestion is better, but, or, I mean, it's good, but it still doesn't rank as high as protein for sure. Um, like protein's always at like a hundred percent or at 1.1, whereas, um, I think there's one plant protein that's like at 0.8, but everything is lower. It's like at 0.4 or five. So, um, even just with those scores itself, it still shows how well meat is absorbed. Yeah. Wow. And I guess too, like that test obviously can't take into consideration the, um, the state of someone's digestion. So if someone Absolutely. has impaired digestion, it doesn't really matter even necessarily like what, how bioavailable, how many uh, amino acids are in the protein, we may or may not be able to utilize or break down any of them. Yeah, so that's a big thing I say, and this is even for carnivores or people that are meat-based, I always say, if your gut health was not ideal when you came into the carnivore diet, you will probably not break down your meat as well, right? If you don't have enough hydrochloric acid or stomach acid in your gut um, to even break down the meats to then absorb um, like the zinc in your small intestine, which is what allows you to um, produce more hydrochloric acid, it's this vicious cycle where you probably are absorbing more than if you were eating vegetables, but you still may have trouble. But that's what this these tests don't measure. They don't measure it in your small intestine. And I think it's really important too because 70 to 80% of our absorption is in our small intestine. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really great point. I think this is why I am so focused with gut health. We need gut health to even start optimal health without having the ability to break down and absorb nutrients properly and then also protect our bodies. Cause again, even the small, um, small intestine also has majority of our immune cells. Like we need our gut health for, um, for, for optimal health. I, I have a follow-up question just about Kate's yeah. point there. So, I mean, I think most people that start exploring animal-based carnivore diets are coming from either the standard American diet or something else that's more plant-based where they may not have good gut health. So when they start out, like, is it just sort of across the board, they have poor uh, absorption and digestion 
of all the nutrients or is it is it sort of some are preferentially more uh sorry less well absorbed than others like do we have certain ones that are more likely to be poorly absorbed is i guess what i'm asking um <clears throat> I don't know if that that's a really good question. I don't know if there's a specific, like, I don't know if like vitamin B12 is harder to absorb than of like vitamin, um, like a mineral, right? Like zinc in um, meat by itself. But if you were to eat like steak with some spinach, which most people do and you know, the population, um, the like anti-nutrients in the vegetables will then block a lot of the enzymes as well as the minerals and absorption. So then if you were to pair meat with a vegetable, then I would say you are risking any of the minerals to be absorbed, not the vitamins. The vitamins, it's it's kind of funny because I do a lot of um, this test. It's a functional test, organic acids testing. And so through the urine, we see metabolites that are absorbing vitamins and minerals and even like amino acids. And a lot of meat-based people, um, you would think that they're really high in all these vitamin Bs, but they're actually really deficient. So vitamin B6 is um, used in so many different kind of pathways in the body. Um, it's needed to help clear oxalates, for example, but a lot of my clients are vitamin B6 deficient. They're also vitamin B12 deficient as much as meat has so much vitamin B12. So the question becomes, are we, um, are we deficient? Are th is this person not breaking it down? And then there's measures we can check for gut health. But um, so yeah, I, I would guess that if you, based on the oats test, um, I would guess that maybe the vitamins may be harder to break down than the minerals. Um, but if you're pairing it with vegetables, then the, I would think the minerals are harder to break down because okay. they're being bound by the anti-nutrients. Okay. Yeah. But, oh, oh yeah, I just wanted to say um, in general though, uh, you know, when people start carnivore, they have a lot of loose stools and they're like, you know, my digestion was horrible at first. Then I went to carnivore. Um, had a lot of, like at first it was bad and, you know, had the loose stools and then it got re really good. Um, I would just challenge the thought of that. Um, I think that's really true. So people definitely feel much better on carnivore in terms of gut health, but is it healing or is it just dormancy, right? So the thought is, and I'm doing a YouTube series on this right now uh, with the uh, microbiologist, but I believe true health is really having the resiliency to, if you wanted to eat like a vegetable, you could, it's just that you choose not to. And so, yes, as you um, balance your electrolytes and you are getting used to eating more fat, your colon will probably have less loose stools. But if you introduce something else and then you get sick again, you know, the question is, are you healing or is it just that you are blocking out the trigger foods and then now you're kind of sustaining on like a band-aid level of gut healing? So that's just something to consider because I have a lot of clients that when they start trying to introduce cheese or some type of vegetable, they regress a lot and it's because they haven't healed their gut health. I'd love to know um, if you have sort of a ballpark figure of sort of what percentage of your clientele or patient base comes in with suboptimal digestion. Oh, um, I would say 90%. So everyone starts with, um, so there's this graph that, um, so we, I do the symptom burden where basically I ask like a 350 questions and it's all related to symptoms. So like it starts from digestion. Like, do you have gas right after you eat? If you have bloat, these are signs that you may have, you know, um, slowing of the digest, um, the stomach emptying, or it could be related to SIBO. Um, but majority of my clients have some type of gut issues. And it makes sense because, and we'll talk about the anti-nutrients, but most plant foods have anti-nutrients and the more severe ones like lectins and phytates, they literally damage your gut. And it's foods that we have been raised to think that they're good for us, right? Like nuts, nuts are literally breaking apart our body, our gut. So um, I think everyone can work on their gut health. There are more people that are severe than others. I have clients that are taking gut healing supports and even with that, um, I'd say even maybe six months in they're they're getting tremendously better, but they still struggle with loose stools, but this person, you know, has colitis. So like there's different issues and, but I would say gut health is very, very, very important in terms of getting back to optimal health. 
So let's say, let's say we're not talking about somebody with Crohn's or something like that. Mm -hmm. Somebody comes in like one of your typical average Joe Schmo clients with poor gut health. How long does it take them typically on average to heal their gut? And what's your sort of dietary prescription to get them to heal their gut completely? So they don't regress when they try to introduce the odd vegetable or piece of cheese or something like that. Sure. So again, it's bio-individuality, but let's just say average Joe, you know, no real metabolic disease. Um, you know, it, let's say that they came because they have some type of, because you're not going to want to work on your gut health unless something's wrong. You're not just coming in saying, Hey, I want to fine tune carnivore. Like what can I do? Right. So yeah. it, there's always something. So it's probably like eczema or psoriasis that also is gut related, right? So your skin is a big organ and it's showing disease because something's wrong. And, um, your skin is the kind of like the easiest way to show indications of something's off. I talk about in the book, like allergies and skin disease is not something it's normal or not, I wouldn't say normal. It's common, but that doesn't mean that it should be normal. And so um, for these people, I get them on like an elimination diet, uh, meaning like a stricter version of carnivore. So maybe removing the dairy, um, any processed foods, remove the pork rinds, just stick to kind of basics. Um, some people don't do as well with pork, so that's fine. Then just maybe stick to beef. Some people don't do well with eggs. So then we remove that. Maybe they slowly try the egg yolks. Um, and then they will do like some sort of probiotics and um, some digestive support. So it really depends. Again, like the question I do breaks down the gut health into four sections. It's like the first quadrant is your like stomach. Second is like bile gallbladder. So it's like how much fat are you able to digest? And we can tell with your loose stools, oily stools, that type of thing. And then it also breaks it down into small intestine support and then large intestine. So based on the results of those four quadrants, I'll know where they need extra support. Small intestine maybe needs some more probiotics and some, you know, like intestinal permeability support to kind of um, seal the lining. The mm -hmm. stomach may need more hydrochloric acid, right? And then the gallbladder might need more bile or some way to kind of make the sludgy bile um, kind of flow better so that you can absorb more fat. It really depends. This is where bio-individuality. Um, but yeah, that's what I would typically recommend is protocol, like a cleaner meat-based diet plus um, some gut support. Okay. And then, and that's like strict. So like no other foods and like, how long does that take usually for them to kind of fully heal? Depends. But um, I, in general, um, significant changes within six months, even for people that are really sick. So the one, that one person I was talking about that had colitis, my client, she started with, and she was meat-based for over a year, her resting glucose was in the 120s, 130s. And so her, you know, diabetic numbers were not really going down significantly. She was waking up multiple times a night, uh, feet swelling by the end of night, you know, the typical diabetic um, symptoms. And now I've worked with her for like four or five months. She still is having issues with, we just did a test and we found like she has excess bacteria in her gut, but everything else is better. And this is in four or five months. And this is a severe case, right? So sleeping through the night, she used to wake up multiple times a night, even to have to go and um, relieve herself. Um, no swelling in the feet and her blood glucose. Now she's changed her macros to a higher fat, moderate protein. And she's now in the mid seventies for um, blood glucose. So it's okay. pretty, and she did those CGMs for two weeks, measuring all the time. Um, average was 70, 80. So yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So let's move away from that for a moment and talk a bit more about anti-nutrients. So just to start, I have a few questions within this realm, of course, but um, you know, like what exactly is an anti-nutrient and then what are the different anti-nutrients that we should know about? Sure. So there, every plant. Okay. So I guess the best way to start this is animal. So in our ecology, every, being wants to protect itself, right? For offspring, whatever, if you want to think of it that way. And so with animals, they can run, right? So they don't need to kind of carry toxins to protect themselves. Whereas plants, they can't. So they naturally will have some anti-nutrients to protect themselves. Um, anti-nutrients are really just these kind of weapons or, you know, protective mechanisms so that a plant, ideally, if like an animal eats a plant and they feel sick, then the kind of recourses, oh, I'll never eat that plant again because it made me sick. And then therefore that plant can kind of thrive and just carry on. Um, so every plant has anti-nutrients. Uh, there are 
a lot. Um, and I have a very simple blog post about like the introduction to antinutrients. I'll give you guys the link so you could share it. But um, I think the biggest ones we should actually concern ourselves with is really phytic acid, um, oxalates and lectins. And the main reason is all three of these um, in a nutshell, they, um, they bind to minerals and then they also um, stop in enzymes from digestion. So as I was talking about with spinach and iron, um, lectins also do that with like nuts and grains. Um, and so if you eat meat with any of these foods, again, the, the risk is not just that you're not absorbing the nutrients in the, the plant-based food. Now you're risking the absorption in the meats. And that's where the danger comes with eating, you know, like an innocuous amount of spinach with your steak, you're risking iron absorption now in both. Right. And, and then if you eat like wholesome grains, right. So quinoa, um, I think it has phytic acid. Um, and so phytic acid, it, uh, decreases iron, zinc, magnesium, copper, phosphorus, and calcium. And there are studies that show that even like 80% of zinc rich foods, which is like cashews and chickpeas, if you eat them, um, they get blocked. Right. And then if you eat them with like meat, which also has zinc, again, it'll get blocked. So the danger is that you, you may be eating a really healthy meal um, or, you know, what we think is a nutrient dense meal, but how much of that are we absorbing one with our gut health and then two with these anti-nutrients. So, I mean, that's where I think understanding that plants aren't these innocuous healthy foods is something that's really, really important. Yeah, I'll just add, um, you know, I think I've shared little bits and pieces of my own personal story on other episodes, but uh, for anyone who's new that's tuning in, uh, I was diagnosed with two different autoimmune diseases when I was five, and it wasn't until I was in my sort of mid-30s that I really understood what the foods were that were really triggering some of my symptoms, and nuts and seeds were by far and beyond the most violent culprits Yes. Um, so even like a small amount of a nut butter or um, even like a little small handful of raw nuts would send me cascading down this like crazy autoimmune spiral where I'd have um, multiple symptoms and flares. And that was really interesting to me because I had been vegan for a decade. So I was consuming nut, nuts nut, and grain free. So like nut flours, nut butters, nuts whole. Um, nut and seed oils, like it would seed protein powders, like the list was endless. And I think that that's a really important point that you bring with these anti-nutrients because again, so many people associate those foods to health. We think that they are healthy foods, but um, especially for some, they can be worse than other things that we perceive to be junk food, for example. Right. So, it is really important, and to your point, again, all of this sort of bioindividuality, bioavailability, plant nutrients, like this sort of triad, uh, this sort of, um, this like tr uh, triangle of important pieces of information that we must consider uh, for optim optimizing health. Yeah, and um, I mean, the reason why I think nuts, like no one should be eating them, so I don't think anyone, um, it doesn't matter if you're not meat-based, even if you just kind of eat meat um, and you are eating vegetables, I have no problem with that. It's that's what works for you, so be it. But I don't think anyone should really be eating grains and nuts and seeds because they have all three of the biggest anti-nutrients that basically block all enzymes essentially and minerals and literally I can read down like um, lectins also block calcium, iron, phosphorus, and zinc. And the thing is lectins are notorious for um, making it through the GI tract and then like breaking apart your lining that's, you know, supposed to be really tight and, you know, the junctions are supposed to be really tight and these lectins are known to break that apart. And that's what then can cause, cause autoimmune, right? So um, these foods, so if we talk about almonds, for example, or cashews, very high in oxalates, which causes joint pain, they put like all these excess crystals everywhere. This is how you can get um, kidney disease. I say this to people that aren't carnivore and I say, look, I'm not making this up go look up what any hospital will give, recommend someone that's just had kidney stone disease and look at the foods they say to minimize. And they say minimize spinach, minimize almonds because they're high in oxalates and they can cause kidney stone buildup, right? All these crystals. 
And then so almonds are very high in oxidants. So are cashews. And then so is chocolate. So if you're eating like chocolate almond butter, you're just asking for all these um, anti-nutrients just in terms of oxalates. And then it also has lectins and it also has the phyt phytic acid. So it's just this triple whammy in terms of anti-nutrients. You're not going to get any of your mineral absorption. And then on top of that, you're slowly building up all these oxalates in your body, risking kidney disease, um, you know, vulvodynia, all these other diseases. And then people wonder, like, why don't I feel well, well on a plant-based diet? It's because you're building all these toxins. And on top of that, you're not absorbing pretty much all your minerals. And who knows how your gut health is, right? So... And that's yeah. even before we talk about molds, radiation, yes. pesticides, and all the other the laundry list of other offenders that, that exist. Yes. So in the book, I write about how um, there are, okay, so, so pistachios, there's like a machine that kind of shakes out and figures out which, um, if I think it's by a weight system. I don't know how they really do it, but there's a system that they can shake pistachios and see which one has more mold and it'll kind of remove them. But it's, Obviously, some nuts will still have some of the mold, but how do we determine which ones are safe and not? But they have machines that even have that kind of mechanism. So the question is, why are we eating foods that even have this issue, right? Um, there are studies that show that the the peanuts and the cashews, you know how there's some that they sell that are not whole, that are like broken pieces, and they're kind of cheaper. And it's because there's a higher chance that those have mold because they're all broken up. And it's just, we, we think these are health foods, right? So a lot of people on paleo, they eat a lot of nuts because they say it's okay. And so they switch to almond butter and like cacao and it's just a, and even keto dieters, right? So they switch to spinach and like, it's just so many anti-nutrient rich foods. And I have a lot of my uh, meat-based clients. So they want to eat something that's high fat, but they think it's safe. So they go for the nut butters and then they feel horrid. And I'm like, they're safer plant foods. Don't go for nut butters. That's just going to be toxic to your gut. And, but we are so brainwashed to think it's so good for us when it's literally damaging our gut. Okay. So I have a potentially controversial question that has yeah. to do with what, what you just talked about. There's a bit of a preamble. So like, I'm a believer now in anti-nutrients that exist. Okay. Like Dr. Georgia Ede has this great slide yeah. in one of her lectures where she shows like zinc absorption from oysters. So it's high when it's just oysters. If you have black beans, it drops to like less than 50% with, you know, if you eat the black mm -hmm. beans with the, with the oysters. And then if you eat corn tortillas with the oysters, it basically flatlines the zinc wow. absorption, right? So I was like, wow, that's super dramatic. But like, you know, in medical school, we never hear about anti-nutrients. We hear like, you know, calcium oxalate stones are the most common kidney stones, but like no nothing in terms of like it being in our food and causing a problem. And then after med school, like I've been very passionately learning about nutrition on the side, like, you know, kind of meandering through the internet, YouTubes and stuff like that. And I never came across it until a buddy of mine, another colleague, he's into the paleo primal lifestyle. So he's the first person who told me about, you know, phytic acid and these kinds of things, lectins a few years ago. But, you know, that was my first exposure. And like nobody that I know other than these guys really knows, you know, the carnivore community knows about anti-nutrients, but none of my sort of regular friends, I've posted on social media about anti-nutrients, none of them have heard of it. They're like, mind is blown. So like, why doesn't everybody know about these things if they're so important? Is it that, you know, I, I mean, I don't really know the answer to that, first of all. And then do we lack the research studies that actually show like, you know, the decreased absorption or is it there, but just people don't know about it? So there are studies. Um, you know, I think, I, obviously, I don't know the answer to that either. I'm guessing that we have become such a plant-based society that we don't want to talk about that stuff. And so, but that's why, again, I say, hey, look, like, pretend there's no carnivore versus plant-based, whatever that is. Just look up what I should eat after a kidney stone diet. And then you see that it's a, they literally call it a low oxalate diet. And so, but they don't ever say these are anti-nutrients, right? They don't say because they block, um, you know, minerals, they don't say those things. It just says, if, if you go to like the Chicago medical, they are, um, it says like, eat a low oxalate diet, here's a diet of uh, foods to remove once you just had kidney stone removal. And so it's there, it's just not really explained. Um, even Harvard Medical, they, 
you know, their library is very pro plant-based. They do have articles on anti-nutrients. You just have to look for it. I think in the kind of nutrition space, you know, plants are revered. Spinach is revered. Kale is revered, right? But there are a lot of anti-nutrients. So the funny thing is, as I was doing a lot of research, um, the plant foods that have the most nutrients or touted nutrients are the foods that have the most anti-nutrients, which makes sense, right? They're trying to block people or, or animals from eating the plants. And so like lettuce, which has like almost no nutrition, right? Like a water, um, um, but th it doesn't have many anti-nutrients because there's really nothing, you know, there's no real nutrients. So how is it blocking it? Um, and then there are studies about, you know, maybe, so this is like an argument a lot of plant-based uh, users use, but they say, okay, well, I'll just properly prepare it, soak it, seed it, whatever, um, and sprout it. All of these things will help the anti-nutrients. It doesn't really. I show studies where there were beans soaked for like two days um, and the phytic acid maybe dropped by like 5%, 10% okay. maybe. So there are studies out there. You just got to search for it. It isn't common, but this is why we're doing what we're doing, right? So we need to educate. Um, there's that one doctor, uh, Steve Gundry. He's more plant-based, but he now has multiple books on the dangers of lectins. So he's saying, okay, yes, eat plant-based. It's good for you. Maybe add some fish, but don't eat these types of plants like the lectin. So he's like, no squash, um, no nuts, no grains, because they basically rip apart your gut, right? So there are books, it's becoming more mainstream. And I do see a lot of just standard American dieters eating less lectins because of Steve Gundry, but you know, we still need, the conversation still needs to occur. And in terms of, you know, anti-nutrients are very real. Um, they're just not talked about enough. So you, you said soaking and so like plant-based advocates will say that, oh, you can kind of get rid of the anti-nutrients through those kinds of methods of preparation. And it's not really that effective. What about cooking? Like is how effective is that at deactivating them? So uh, oxalates is like next to none. And um, so Sally Norton is a very, you know, well-known kind of oxalate guru. And I've talked to her about it. She said, it's really, really hard. The only plant foods that kind of remove oxalates are the oils and extracts because it kind of removes all the um, um, anti-nutrients. So maybe, I mean, avocados don't really have high oxalates, but I'm trying to think of another, maybe like olive oil, because olive oil, if you eat, if you eat more than like six olives, then it becomes high in oxalates. So olive oil has less um, anti-nutrients in terms of oxalates, but the only, there are other anti-nutrients. So there's glucosinolates, which are in like the, the broccolis and cauliflowers. That anti-nutrient, if you cook it, can be reduced by 50%, but it's wow. still only 50%. 50% yeah. is high. Yeah. So I definitely think that's a safer anti-nutrient food than the phytic acid, le um, lectins, and oxalates, because those, based on the studies I found, they are very, very hard to remove, even with the proper preparation, soaking, cooking, all of that. Um, okay. in terms of cooking. So like if you were to cook broccoli, the best way to prepare it is steaming or boiling and then removing the water because the water has the anti-nutrients. And so that's why whenever people make like bone broth and they add vegetables, I'm always saying throw out the vegetables be or the broth and then cook it without the vegetables because otherwise you're getting like anti-nutrient soup. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's pretty crazy, but yes. yeah. No, that's super fascinating. Thank, thank you for explaining that. So I guess just to shift gears a little bit, um, one of our other topics we wanted to cover today was on um, histamine intolerance. And, and to me, again, it's one of those things I'm kind of new to this whole world as of the last year. This has been kind of a mythical thing that I've heard people talk about, but I have it on good account. Like Kate says, it's a real thing. And, you know, so I'm kind of curious, you know, from you, like uh, as an expert in this area, um, like what, what is your definition of it? And like, you know, what's sort of the science behind it and, you know, how do different foods play into this? Yeah. So histamines have a lot of roles in the body. Um, and it's basically the immune system is trying to signal, um, it's signaling to the immune system to kind of support the body because something like a virus or something's in the body that's, you know, a foe, um, like an enemy. And so it's, then your body then releases histamines. And so you feel the histamine effect, but that's why people start removing foods that are higher in histamines. 
but I think that's a band-aid, right? So I see a lot of people lately like, oh, you got to eat kidney or thymus because all of those have more DAO, which supposedly breaks down. It's an enzyme that breaks down histamines. Those are great. Um, it, that's a true fact. But again, it's a band-aid. So you really should figure out like, why do I have histamine intolerance, right? So again, histamines that um, a lot of the Dow is produced in the small intestine, right? That's where your immune health is. Um, and so Histamines basically upregulate the Treg system, which is part of your immune system. And so there's a few things about it. So one, if your small intestine is permeable and um, you know, you're having autoimmune reactions, the chance of you having histamine intolerance is very high because again, your body, so your small intestine, if it's not functioning properly, it's going to have a hard time just trying to clear out the bad toxins in the food, right? So these anti-nutrients, breaking down these like gut damaging vegetables, lectins, whatever it is. And then, so when you have like a seasonal allergy or some allergy that's triggered by a virus, your body just gets overwhelmed, right? The immune system is just taxed at that point, because again, your small intestine isn't working optimally. And so then you're going to have a histamine reaction, like too many histamines, not enough Dow to kind of release it. And so I, again, whenever I have a client that has a histamine intolerance, I always say, instead of just removing the culprits, we should do that initially, but you need to work on your gut. You need to work on small intestine health. Um, and so you can eat the kidney, but really it's focusing on healing the small intestine. What's interesting is, so a few things that trigger histamine response is, I mean, again, you know, eating culprit foods, um, maybe seasonal allergies, but it can also be that you have like a more dormant virus. And then when your body is under stress, um, so like the Epstein-Barr virus, right? Like you get it, maybe you contract it when you're young, it's kind of dormant, you don't really have it. But then when you're in high stress, something may trigger that virus to kind of waken up and then histamines are released so that it can kind of fight your, your body is basically trying to protect itself. And so histamines will be released and then you'll feel it. So in a stress um, in a state of stress, you may feel histamines more and then feel like it's more of the foods, but it's kind of a blend of everything, right? So this is why stress management is so important. Stress can make your small intestine more permeable. You know, it just kind of goes back to gut health and lifestyle. So what I about mean, um, the relationship between copper deficiency or excess zinc and that's effect on uh, histamine intolerance? Yeah. So one of the big things that histamines also do is it signals your stomach to make more hydrochloric acid. So it makes sense, right? So if, um, if you are zinc deficient and zinc is one of the minerals you need to make hydrochloric acid, um, then you might not produce enough zinc. But zinc is also in balance with copper. So if you have too much copper, then you may become deficient in zinc. So it's to make sure and have that balance. Most people are not deficient in copper. Most people, more people are deficient in zinc. And it makes sense because they say the number is like 90% of Americans, um, and it might just be 90% of people in the world are deficient in hydrochloric acid, which is again, you need zinc to make that. And then if you're deficient in that, that like how, how are the, um, how is the histamine working with all that? Great. Um, can you expand a little bit on which foods are troublesome for histamine intolerance and what a histamine reaction might look like maybe? Yes. Um, so let's see, uh, histamine reaction is just very similar to just like an allergic response. So you can have, um, it's a lot of the sinus, um, just not feeling well. Um, maybe it can have some skin irritation, but those are the biggest. And then histamine intolerance food, foods that are higher in histamines can be like the, um, any meat that kind of sits out for longer, right? So they say like bone broth, if it's cooked for a long time, um, it releases more histamines, um, like uh, cured meats, um, like aged meats, and then I think some seafoods. And then there are some foods that have histidine, which then can get converted to histamines. And then so, you know, those foods are also considered culprits. Again, I think for myself and just with my clients, a lot of the you know, I noticed in the carnivore space, so someone brings up one thing and everyone's like, it's everything is oxalates or everything is histamines, right? It, it's true. I think a carnivore diet, you get to baseline. And so you're getting very close to root cause healing. 
And so if you have any type of like gut disease, it'll show up now, right? Because you're like clearing out all the noise of all the anti-nutrients plants. So all of the pain now, you're kind of running at a very um, clean fuel source. And so any little excess, like in, in terms of histamines, it'll show up. And so instead of thinking it's just the meat, it's, I think it's an indication like this might be your one last thing you need to kind of heal. And so what is the source of that? It's not the meat, right? Like meats definitely have histamines can definitely trigger histamine intolerance, but let's get to the core of the histamines, right? Even with autoimmune issues, if you, as you heal your small intestine, your flare-ups for autoimmune will lessen your flare-ups for histamines will lessen as you heal your gut. And then you properly nourish your body with meats. Very interesting. I actually, um, do eggs have histamines or could people have uh, a histamine reaction from eggs? So it depends on what part of the egg. So I think the egg whites will probably have more in general. It's the egg whites that have the allergen allergens. It has proteins called avidins that people are very allergic to or sensitive to. So that's why I always say to some people, if you can't tolerate the egg whites, try egg yolk, um, try like duck and quail, they have less of the avidin. Um, and so some people, you know, they don't have that intolerance because egg yolks are super, super nutrient dense. Um, it might have some, the egg yolks, I'm not entirely sure, but I know some of the egg whites can. So it, you, you have to just see what works. This is why the elimination is so ideal. So like work on your gut health, get it on a strict diet, and then start adding back foods that you might think are culprit. Do it for just three days and only isolate that one food. Eat safe foods plus that one new food, and then eat it for like three days. And how are you doing? And if you have a reaction, you probably either need a little bit more gut health or you're not ready to introduce that new food. I asked about the eggs because at the beginning of my animal-based journey, mm -hmm. I reintroduced eggs and I would break out immediately. Like I had little bumps on my cheeks. And then I actually think I saw one of your little infographic posts about yolks. So I said, okay, let me try yolks. I tried yolks. I tried duck eggs. I tried quail and the kind of the skin issues went away mm -hmm. and now I can have egg whites once in a while and I'm fine. I don't get it anymore. So that makes perfect sense. It's like that part kind of healed, hopefully. Yeah, um, no, that's exactly what it means. If, if you can tolerate it now and that's, that's healing, right? It's not, okay, I'm never going to touch eggs again because, because then that's a band-aid type of healing. You, it's fine if you don't want to eat egg whites often because you know, it's less than ideal for you. But if you can tolerate eggs and try different ones, that's resiliency healing, right? Because one day you're going to have to eat outside of your like meals that are safe. And then what, what are you going to do if you're only using a bandaid for healing? Right. So, yeah. And also I just want to let you know, Judy, um, a lot of times I see a lot of people suffering with uh, allergies, seasonal allergies, sinus. Um, this was something that was like my everyday, like I literally had like a leaky faucet for a nose. Like it was just years of just absurdity just like running through tissues all day long and never ended. And I think it was you that actually, I think it was a video we watched with you and Sally Norton, where you made a very bold statement. You said something about um, the elimination diet. You're like, you said something about like, try the elimination diet and then you'll see that next year your seasonal allergies will be like little to none or something like that. And I'm here to tell you that's legitimately exactly what happened. When I tell people that my allergies has completely reversed, it's almost like they laugh, they think it's unbelievable. Um, they never buy it. They're still buying these like, you know, whatever areas. I don't know what kind of brands they have in the US, but there's a ton of allergy pills that people just buy every day. And I'm pretty sure it's just Band-Aid effect. It goes away and then it comes back. And um, I'm always preaching about how the diet has basically cured these allergies. I have not been able, I get so guilty sometimes. I used to kick out my poor little dog out of my room thinking that I was like allergic to the dog because it would just not stop. Yeah. And I think pretty sure within 30 days of the elimination diet, like yeah. that has all been reversed. Yeah. So I want to credit that to you. I'm so thankful yeah. to run to that video. And that was a bold claim and I wasn't too sure of it, but when it came true and I saw it and I experienced it, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, that is one thing that a lot of my clients experience. So they get on the, some of the probiotics, then they get on the elimination diet. And then they notice during, you know, the allergy season, they don't have as many outdoor allergies. I always tell people the reason why you suffer from outdoor allergies is not, and a lot of people get it as they get older too, it gets more severe. It's not because of age that you're getting sicker. It's because your gut is getting more damaged. Wow. The more toxic 
of a load that your small intestine has, which is where again, 80% of your immune health is, the more that your body can't tolerate any outside or external environmental allergens, the more you are healed, your body's strong enough now that when you go outside and there's allergens or even inside your house, you can deal with it because now your body is strong enough. It's not dealing with the food that you're dealing with in terms of allergies. Um, And then the other thing that people don't think about is every medication requires nutrients to be cleaned out of your system, right? So it may temporarily give you a band-aid, like we have like Claritin and these other medications that support allergens every day. And I see people take it every day for like three, four months straight, but it's a tax on your liver and your detox system. And then for your liver to even work on that, it's taking nutrients from other parts of your body. So there is not, there's always a consequence when you're taking, um, other medications. And I have a table in carnivore care where it talks about depletions of certain nutrients when you're taking like birth control, statins, um, you know, stomach acid. And a lot of these medications are temporary. If you read the inserts, it'll say two weeks max, for example, like stomach, um, the Harper medications, it says do not take it for more than two weeks. Some people take it for like two decades. It's so, so bad for you. Okay, I got a question. It's a bit of a two-parter. So first part, just to clarify. So you're basically saying that root cause histamine intolerance has to do with a gut that hasn't completely healed, correct? Yes. yes. Okay. So now obviously, you know, when people are eating, uh, we don't various plant products, anti-nutrients can worsen gut health and will presumably worsen histamine intolerance. Now let's say you're an animal-based dieter, you've got histamine intolerance, let's say you eat one of these animal products that is, you know, has high histamines or can trigger histamine intolerance. Does it make your overall histamine tolerance status worse? Or is it just that it triggers a reaction, but you're still kind of still at the baseline level of disease, like, you know, bone broth or something like that? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think it's not that your histamine is getting worse. I think that it's just you're, you're just triggering the histamines to release. So it might just be, you're not producing enough Dow to break down the enzymes. Um, maybe you aren't, you know, eating enough nutrients to support the small intestine. It could be a variety of things. Um, or it could just be that your body is like inundated with all this environmental allergies that now it can't even support the histamines within your body. Um, histamines are, you know, used for so many different things. Maybe the histamines are trying to use all its energy to make more stomach acid. And so then it can't even work on the histamines in your gut. It could be a variety of things for my clients though, histamines and allergens and skin disease. Those are some of the first things to show healing as soon as they get on an elimination, plus maybe some gut support if they need it. Okay. So basically for someone who wants to like recover or heal their histamine intolerance, it's the same formula as sort of healing overall gut yeah. health, like a carnivore diet and maybe avoiding eggs and dairy and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, okay. And some of the cured meats, so anything aged. So um, if you are very sensitive to histamines, then maybe you don't want to eat like ground beef that's just kind of packaged outside. Uh, you want to get like the freshest meats. You don't want to eat like cured, like salami, those types of meat don't get like aged steak, all of those have higher histamines. Um, Some of the seafoods, and then I have a list in the book, I can't recall off the top of my head, but again, then again, some histidine foods also can get converted to histamines, but you may not be able to heal your histamine intolerance. There's um, some of it might just be genetic, you're more susceptible, but in general, you can, um, you can kind of tame your results, if that makes sense. So you don't have as much of a sensitivity to histamines. Okay, cool. Awesome. So your book, Carnivore Cure, which we ordered and we're patiently waiting for it. Uh, It's coming out, I believe, December 2nd. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah. So, you know, I've been carnivore for two and a half years and you know, as I was making graphics and just sharing content, blog posts, so on and so forth, I started getting the same questions over and over. And so, you know, I love to write. Um, I've always written and, you know, I like to share information in kind of like these bite-sized pieces. And, you know, I like to just educate because I think I was plant-based for 12 years. It made me so sick. I had, you know, struggled with depression, anxiety, had a lot of eczema and now like all of that's cured. I don't take any antidepressants. I don't have these crazy mood swings. And 
you know, I have a lot of mental, you know, energy and just energy in general, right? It's like consistent throughout the day. And so I just want to give back, right? Like I was a management consultant, but it wasn't fulfilling. And now what I do, it's a lot of work, but I mean, I'm fulfilled. I'm like helping people and they can help other people. And then it's, you know, we can all heal with me, right? So um, the book is really supposed to be kind of like a one-stop shop for carnivores. So if you are brand new, it'll be a lot of information, but it still can guide you. There's like an elimination protocol near the end and you can follow it and it's pretty strict, but you can, you know, start that way. Um, it also gives uh, people that have been carnivore for a while and let's say they're still having histamine issues or they're still having like gut issues where once in a while if they eat too much fat, they're having loose stools. You shouldn't be having that kind of stuff. It helps you to personalize your carnivore even more. So like how you guys were, you know, dealing with some of the auto, um, I mean, some of the allergies, it, it talks through those things. Like there's a whole section on allergies in the gut. And so, you, and then it also gives you the education. So a lot of people don't have the kind of wherewithal to fight or argue with their, you know, their immediate community of how are you just doing meat-based? Like what about vitamin C or fiber? Or, you know, what about your cholesterol? Like it talks about all those specific nutrients so that you can be, a, you know, you can have the confidence and security. Like, no, I know what I'm doing is right. I know this diet is nutrient dense. And I know that plant foods aren't that beneficial. Here's a whole chapter on it. Um, in terms of like zero carbon hormones, there's a chapter on it, uh, cholesterol. And so you can always have it as a starting point to talk with your community, it educates people. And then even if your doctor is like trying to get you on hormone medication, or like a statin, because your LDL is high, well, it talks through, well, it matters in context. Like if your triglycerides are under a hundred and your LDL is high, but so is your HDL, well, your risk of cardiovascular disease is significantly less, right? Or if you get your HSCRP inflammatory marker tested and it's close to zero and your LDL is high, maybe the context is you're not at risk for heart disease. So it talks through all of that. Um, it There's like nutrient profiles. So you know, a lot of people are like, there's no vitamin C in meat. There are, there's actually a table of just meats with vitamin C so that, you know, people can like use that as a rest assured. Um, there's like discussion of antioxidants. It just really tries to cover everything in the kind of meat based world so that we have a resource. Because when I first started, we didn't even have any graphics, right? Like I was like, what do I eat? Right. I hear the two pounds of meat, but two pounds of meat doesn't work for everyone. Some of my clients, like I was saying, had diabetes, even eating two pounds of meat. So you need to work on finding your personalized carnivore for everybody. It's going to be a little different. I was uh, saying to Daniel, I don't know about you guys growing up, if your families had like a nutrition book in the house and what kind of nutrition book it was. But a few weeks ago, I found this book at my dad's house and it's an English book in English and it pretty much, I don't remember the title, but it was talking about why fat is bad. Oh yeah. So great, like great book to have in the house. I was telling Daniel, I would love for a book, your book to be like staple. the staple book that, you know, we can kind of uh, refer back to like when we have a family of our own, because we aren't doctors. So for us, like, it's so useful to have a chapter on all of the vitamins and the benefits. And so we, we have that armor, you know? And I think it also would help with adherence. Um, of course, we're, we're just regular civilians, but yeah. we always try to help everyone, like family, friends, like we, we've had so many test subjects. And what I'm finding is exactly what you're saying. They're going to work, right? They're getting the reinforcement of those other ideas are saying, well, how about you're getting this? And they're calling me later. What do I say to them? And yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that's yeah. so funny how like that, that can affect someone and deter someone from going on and adhering to the diet because of the outside pressures. But now that you have this book, I mean, that's, that's the answer, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that was the goal. So that's why I put extra care and I try not to go the ancestral way. Cause I know that there's a lot of already kind of backing for that. So right. let's just say there's no ancestral anything. Let's just talk about facts of today. And that's what I went off of. So I went off of, okay, so we shouldn't be eating all these toxic chemicals that are in our foods. And so if you remove all of those toxins, then like what foods are left. And then it's kind of like what's left is, you know, so no food dies, none of the preservatives and all this other junk that I talk about in the beginning. And then you talk about, okay, foods that may damage your gut. So then you'll remove those foods and then you kind of end up with whole foods, right? So then I talk about whole foods. So like, okay, let's talk about plants, like how beneficial. And I'll talk about bioavailability. I talk about anti-nutrients. I talk about even organic foods and how much pesticides. So they use like 
Oh, like in Cal, there's one study I showed um, in in California. They use like just on the same acre of land, so they don't use glyphosate and the pesticides um, and herbicides that aren't organic. But they use like eight times or something more than that for organic pesticides because it's just not as potent. But if you're consuming that much, is it beneficial for us, right? So it's just yeah, you're not getting the, and so I talk about how some of these organics are so powerful in terms of like pesticides. So they make a conventional version and then they don't even say it's organic anymore because it works so well. So like, that's the concern with even like, and so these are not talked about as much, right? And then I talk about climate change. I'm so glad in this one sense that COVID happened because now we can say it wasn't the cows, right? Like cows were never in lockdown and then the environment got a lot cleaner. I also talk about how, you know, veganisms are saying, or vegans say that, you know, this is cruel to animals. So I talk about that, right? Like how, yes, maybe it's not, you know, these factory farms aren't beneficial for animals, but is, are you by not eating meat and nourishing your body? How is that loving yourself though? Right. And then loving the grounds that we will then be buried in to then feed the cows. Right. So it touches all of that. It's really to support people and maybe just give a mind shift change. And I use a lot of science because I don't want to go, this is just my story, right? Because it's not as factual as saying, okay, let's talk about vitamin C or cholesterol. Um, and I, I, and I really used a lot of graphics and tables because a lot of people are visual, not a lot of people want to read. So but you'll get stuck with some images from the graphics or the tables. And then you can't forget, wait, I remember seeing the next time I want to pop like a, you know, an antacid, all of those nutrients that I'll be deficient in every time I take this, right? Like you can't forget that. And that is why I made this book. Like I'm hoping that, you know, I can only talk to so many people, but if, if you have a book and you can read it or even look at the pictures, it's something that'll kind of plant the seed. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I've referenced your infographics a lot to family, friends. It's they're so helpful, and you're right. The visuals, it just it's a smack on your face. It's it's, so cool. it's great. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad that to hear that uh, there's a lot of them on your book. I can't wait to get it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm um I'm excited to see like how the community responds, and you know, I don't want to hear anymore that like we need carbs for hormone health. Like I always say you know, carbohydrates are not a essential. So, you know, the body can produce the needs on its own, but if it's not an essential macronutrient, why do people think it's essential for hormones? Like the body is not dumb, right? So you're not going to make a macronutrient non-essential, but then make it essential for certain organs in your body. The logic is not there. So mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. But. Yeah. That's one of the great things about this whole space, I think, is that there is science to back this stuff up. So you can write a book that's very like factual and not yeah. just, oh, this was my story. But then on the flip side, once someone, you know, believes in the science, reads a book like, you know, what you're putting out, the stuff in our podcast, then they go and try this stuff out, right? Like we've all had journeys of kind of trying this out at some point once we hit a wall and healing. And I've, I've started to lose count too of like, friends that have said they're going to try it and like they've lost like 30 pounds they feel better their sleep is better like they're all just they're thanking me you know for telling them about this i'm just like happy that other people are benefiting right so it's it's great to have stuff like what you're putting out there uh to help everyone in this space yeah and um you know one last thing is that we should never be waking up in the middle of the night like that's another thing i talk about you know, I think a lot of people think as we get older, our kidneys don't function as well. So, you know, we wake up to go to the restroom, but it's not true. You shouldn't wake up at all. That's normally a cortisol response because your blood sugar is imbalanced, or it could be because of stress, which is also from cortisol. And as you, you know, balance the blood sugar in your body, you balance stress, you should be able to sleep through the night, even at the age of 80. So that's just another thing. It's like, we've just been um, miseducated in terms of like these things. Yes, things break down as we age, but you shouldn't be waking up in the middle of the night. You shouldn't have these like random joint pain and inflammation like, oh, that's new. That's getting older. It's, it's not, it's a yeah. sign that your body's telling you something's wrong. It's just being normalized because people have been experiencing yeah. this for decades now, right? Like our parents experienced it, probably their parents too. So it's just like, yeah, this is how we get old. Yeah. yeah. But it's not crazy yeah so judy i know you've got this book coming out and everyone can go to your instagram uh, nutrition wait nutrition with judy 
Is that your handle? Okay, perfect. So people can go there to look at your infographics, um, you know, learn more about you, see what you're doing. I'm sure there's a link in your link tree to order the book, but how can people work with you? Sure. So um, I have a website. So I do blog posts on my website. <clears throat> I sell some of the supplements that, um, you know, I work with my clients. It's, that's kind of relatively new for me, um, but it's at nutritionwithjudy.com. So you can sign up for the blog post. Um, newsletters that come out. I also just recently made all my YouTube videos into a podcast and then we'll keep having it as podcast too. Um, and, but yeah, you can reach me at nutrition with Judy. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And um, I also write, share my blog posts on medium as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. This was really fun. I hope it, um, you know, educates your community about like, especially about anti-nutrients. Yes, you are a wealth of knowledge in that department. And I think that was a subject that we haven't yet handled. And so we're so grateful that you could come join us today and, and talk in depth about that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much, Judy. It's been Thanks a pleasure. All right, take care. Okay, so like usual, guys, if you follow us here at Carnivore Roundtable, please like, subscribe, and most importantly, share our content so that we can spread this message, just like Judy's saying, um, and really help to unlearn all of these habitual, um, deeply grained things so that we can heal.